0: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is the seventh and final interview in Reese's spring series Socialism: Past, Present, and Future. In this series, we've been exploring the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist-inspired economic development and state building, and visions of a socialist future from a global perspective. Communist revolutions in the 20th century were reliant on a profound change in individual consciousness. It is not surprising that communist ideology spoke forcefully and often about creating new people. Revolutionary China was no different. But how did Chinese communists, at various levels, from Mao Zedong to village cadres, understand their work to transform individual consciousness? What did Maoism mean in the everyday? For some answers and some insight, I turn to Amanda Smith. Amanda Smith is an associate professor of history at Michigan State University, where she specializes in the social and cultural history of Chinese communism. She's the author of Thought Reform in China's Dangerous Classes Reeducation, Resistance, and the People, published by Roman and Littlefield. She is currently writing a book tentatively titled Truth Revolutions. Consciousness and the Praxis of Chinese Communism, which investigates how Chinese communists, at various levels, understood their work as a global praxis that fomented revolution by facilitating profound and personal changes in individual consciousness. Here's Aminda Smith. So, Aminda, I thought we'd start by just having you just tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Okay, well, I teach Chinese history at Michigan State University, as you said. I um, uh, yeah, I'm interested in the social and cultural history of Chinese communism. I'm also the co-director of the PRC History Group, which is a scholarly organization that promotes collaboration between PRC historians in the us and China and in other parts of the world. We share, resources. We have a listserv. We also do a free graduate seminar. So if there are any graduate students out there that want to do a methods seminar with uh, people working on PRC history around the country and sometimes China and Europe, if we can get the timing right, um, get in touch with me. We're always looking to welcome students into that.
0: And and how is that? How is the, the history dealing with historians from China and those in the U.S. or possibly Europe, in, in working with each other and dealing with Maoism, are there some contentious issues that kind of you know live in debate, or what's the kind of general atmosphere of that that uh, working together?
1: Yeah, there are. I mean, it's very very productive relationship. We're interested in many of the same questions, but we definitely have different takes. You know, depending on where we're coming from and the historiographical traditions. And of course, at the moment, um, it's getting more and more difficult for our colleagues in the PRC to talk with us in open ways. Um, where We had a few. Uh, we have. We do a journal, the PRC History Review, and we had a couple of pieces that were scheduled to come out from our colleagues in the PRC, and this would they would be coming out in English, but uh, they pulled them because they were sort of warned that now, you know, wasn't a great time to to publish things on the Mao era. So um, some of the tensions are, are yeah, to do with um, kind of control over information there. But then, of course, yeah, there are historiographical tensions as well. We see things in a slightly different way. But I think it's a a productive conversation and of course you know we're not the first people to to foster these kinds of conversations but we just sort of took advantage of digital platforms to kind of step up our ability to talk to our colleagues in China.
0: And and you know another question I have before we dive into things is is you know as a, as a Russian historian a big thing for us in dealing with the Soviet period was access to archives. Um so what is the situation for you who's working in revolutionary China what's the access to materials like?
1: at the well i mean at the very moment now it, it you know we can't we we can't go to china but um up until you know the coronavirus uh, there was a lot of talk about archives closing and i know some people experienced restrictions i was still enjoying pretty good access at the beijing municipal archives and the shanghai municipal archives my graduate students have been finding things at major archives and so my sense is that things are still open um but it's, hard, it's, it's harder to get you know, things than it used to be. Maybe it takes a little bit longer. Um, but until the, um, the pandemic, I was sort of cautiously optimistic about the future of, of archival access, um, even as other people were a little bit more pessimistic. I, I, I saw a lot of that, and I was worried about it too, but I never actually saw that, that shutdown that people were worried. But I, I know others working on other topics have found that they were being denied access to documents. So I think it does also depend on what you, what you do.
0: Right, right. That's always the case of like, what's the topics, right? You have you get more leeway if you do some things versus other things, of course,
1: and sort of who you are, you know, if you're known to be somebody who's really actively sort of trashed, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, you might find it a little harder to get access than somebody who they perceive as maybe being a little bit more fair or something like that, too.
0: And how did you get interested in this?
1: Uh, Well, you know, it actually goes back to a a sort of an unrelated uh, development, which is um, that when I was 18, I was living in Boise, Idaho, and this was in 1991. So at the very tail end of the Cold War, and I decided to join the the CPUSA, the Communist Party. Yeah, not because I had any like political (laughs) understanding of communism. It was just like the most radical thing that I could think of to do to sort of, you know, assert my um, individuality at the time. But in doing that, you know, I started attending study meetings and sort of reading Marxism and I became really interested, both on the kind of theoretical level, but also about the history of the kinds of social movements that um, communist parties have have been involved in. And so I was kind of thinking about those things when I went back uh, to uh, get an undergraduate degree after I took a couple of years off after high school. And I thought I wanted to be a European historian but on the recommendation of a classmate, I took a, a history of Eastern civilizations class from Professor Shelton Woods, who was at Boise State University at the time, who's sort of famously an incredibly compelling uh, educator and mentor. And he sort of inspired in me a, a passion for for Chinese history. And then my interest in in communism and Marxism kind of led to me being especially interested in the PRC period. And this was also a time when that so-called fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers. There are people like, uh, you know, like Chung Kai-gai or Zhang Yimou, where those films were becoming really famous internationally. And, you know, historians have all sorts of evaluations of what their view of the past was. But watching those particular retellings of PRC history, movies like, you know, Farewell, My Concubine, um, that just kind of further inspired my interest. And so I went to China on a study abroad in 96 or 97, I can't remember for sure. And it was a great time to go interested in these kinds of things, because there were a lot of people who were willing to talk about the recent past. Um, And so I started to learn Chinese and yeah, just kind of stayed in that path.
0: Well, let me just talk a bit about the book you've published, which is Thought Reform in China's Dangerous Classes, Reeducation, Resistance, and the People. And this, this book a study addresses the attempts to transform the Chinese Lupin proletariat. So prostitutes and other kind of people of the lower margins of society into essentially communist citizens. So what are some what what first is is what is thought reform?
1: Yeah. So thought reform is a process that well, I don't want to say it got a bad rap because maybe it deserved its rap, but it has a sort of a misleading reputation. Um, the way that you know, of course, in the 1950s, people in the U.S. became aware and around the world of Chinese communist thought reform through the so-called brainwashing scare, right? Where uh, these prisoners of war, U.S. soldiers who had been uh, captured during the Korean War, and they wound up in these prison camps run by Chinese communists, where um, they sort of came out apparently supporting the Chinese communists and kind of. Uh, being disloyal to their own countries, a few of them even even chose to move to China rather than to move back to the US. And so there was this scare that the Chinese had invented some kind of almost supernatural kind of mind control, right? Where they could just like completely wash your brain free of the stuff that you you had believed and and put something else there in in its place.
0: Basically like the Manchurian Candidate film, right? With, With Frank Sinatra. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Where he is actually also uh, yeah, he's brainwashed and to to sort of turn against the U.S. Of course, in that movie, there's a conspiracy theory because he's actually at the behest of you know U.S. officials that this that this is done. But yeah, well, that's one of my great my favorite Hollywood lines uh, when the brainwasher is talking about what he's done. He says, you know, their brains haven't just been washed; they've been dry cleaned. Right? <laughs> this <laughs> idea that you get a brain so clean um, and sort of you know in the aftermath of of this scare. Um, Most historians, both in China and in the U.S., sort of concluded that this was kind of hysteria, that the Chinese had never really done this. And this had said more about, you know, U.S. fears than what was going on in China. And they said, you know, even brainwashing, which the initial reports had said was a translation of a Chinese term, they said it's actually that's fake. They never used that term in China. But it turns out that that's not entirely true either. Um, it looks now like they stopped using the term when the Americans started using it as part of a smear campaign against them, but that in fact it had sort of been circulating um, among ca- cadres and other agents of the party. But it was supposed to mean something totally different, right? It was supposed to mean washing out all the negative ideas that had prevented people from seeing the way that um, capitalism, imperialism, and feudalism had kept them um from achieving liberation, right, had actually worked in the interest of a small group of elite and, and not, um, yeah, not in the in the interests of ordinary people. And I mean, I think, I mean, what I always tell my students is that sort of at the base of it, it's not a really a very controversial idea, right, the idea that the culture that you grow up in, the fairy tales that you consume, the religious traditions that you have, that those shape the way you you see the world, right, the values that you have and what you think is good and what you think is bad. And that if you grow up in a a capitalist society, you're more likely to think that capitalism is a natural way that people relate to each other. And, you know, that might be good if you think that's good. Uh, For Marxist thinkers, that's bad. And so the first thing you want to do is get people to kind of question those kinds of assumptions and try to think about, well, is that necessarily true? You know, is the free market like gravity or something? Is it the only way that we, um, you know, can relate to each other or not? Right. And so the idea was originally supposed to be, let's just get rid of these kind of assumptions that are sort of encoded in in culture, um, and then you're free to sort of see the world as it really is, right? Um, and then there of course there's a positive indoctrination piece. Then the Chinese communists are also going to tell you how they think the world is, and then you're gonna you're gonna, you know, sort of operate on that basis. And it's not always just education either. I mean there was explicitly always a coercive element in this. It was always like, you know, if you were either a prisoner of war undergoing thought reform in a camp or if you were a student in a high school, if you were receptive to this kind of rethinking or, or questioning your own thoughts, um, and you were willing to do that voluntarily, you would be allowed to do that. Um, if you showed any resistance, they would interpret that as you having a particularly backward mindset and maybe needing a little bit of extra force all the way up to incarceration and uh, physical violence.
0: So how did this work amongst like, these marginalized groups in, in Chinese society? I mean, you know, what, what strikes me about them is A, they, they tend not to be they tend to be kind of outside the general purview of any kind of state, you know, administration. They tend to be migratory in many cases. So how did this work out uh, in 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 the party's attempts to edu- re-educate these people or educate, give them political education?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they had always, the Chinese Communist Party had always ha- had a really long-term relationship with these kinds of uh, groups because when they were sort of forced out of the cities during the civil war with the nationalists, you know Mao Zedong and others were out in the countryside and it was difficult for them to get uh, farmers and factory workers to join the movement. So Mao actually had to rely on these so-called, you know, dangerous classes, people who already were, as you say, kind of moving around, kind of willing to do things for hire. Um, And so from the very beginning, he received a lot of criticism for recruiting lots of vagrants, lots of mercenaries. And so he became convinced really early on that through political education, you could actually transform these people into people who were actually committed to the revolution. Um, And he sort of continued to, to think that. And that became a really important part of communist praxis from the very beginning. And so when they start to take over cities, where there are especially in 1949, when refugees are coming from all over the country to the cities, Um, lots of people who are, you know, uh, begging, vagrant, uh, working in sex work. Um, The communists kind of view them as both members of the people, not enemies, but potentially uh, persuaded by the enemies, right? Mao called them vacillators, right? They'll go to either side depending on what they think is in their best interest. But he said, but that's only because they've been forced out of the ranks of the people, right? The lumpen proletariat, the whole point is that they're so bad off that they don't even have the ability to sell their labor, which is supposed to be the thing that makes you the most oppressed in capitalism, right? Is having to nothing to sell but your labor. But these people can't even sell their labor um, for a variety of reasons. And so... They, that's why their mindsets are particularly backward because they've suffered so much under the old society. So we owe it to them to give them a chance to move back and take their rightful place among the working class. But at the same time, because, according to the Communists, they have those really backward mindsets, they don't they're going to continue wanting to go back to crime and these kinds of activities because that's all that they know. And so we also have to get them off the streets to kind of make society more orderly and safe from them while they undergo this process. So they said, so we're gonna incarcerate all of them. Um, And the places where they incarcerated them weren't so dissimilar to the kinds of workhouses where they had been incarcerated under other governments and around the world in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, But there was a a different kind of a focus on political re-education in these new houses.
0: And what was the experience of some of these people? Because I know you, you, in your work, you're trying to get at the ground level, like really the, the relationship between, say, the party activists on the ground and the people they're trying to influence and shape. So talk a bit about some, maybe give us some examples of some of the things you came across in your research.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, your experience really varied a lot based on your attitude, you know, toward what was happening. I mean, I think that... Um, Regardless, I mean, it's hard to know whether the top city leaders were sort of cynical in this, whether what they really wanted to do was just get these people off the streets and get them into factory work, you know, which is what ended up happening to to a lot of them, or get them out, you know, digging ditches in the countryside or something. But a lot of the people who did the work at the ground level, these were people who really seemed to have been committed to the kinds of things the Communist Party wanted to do. I mean, I remember... Um, reading memoirs of and talking to a few of the women who had actually worked in the re-education centers where they were re-educating sex workers. And they would talk about how, you know, they joined the party as like young students in a place like Beijing or Shanghai, and they were so excited to like, you know, fight for the rights of the oppressed and the working class and housewives and all. And when they were sent to a re-education center to work with sex workers, they were just kind of horrified, right? Because um, they couldn't tell their families, they were totally embarrassed that they had to do this. Um, You know, and the the, their leaders had to sort of patiently reeducate them. Um, But over time, they actually did come to develop, in a lot of cases, very sympathetic views of the women that they were working with. And some of those women, some of those sex workers, um, that was meaningful to them. And and they actually formed a bond with the women who were working there, bonds that um, seemed to have lasted for a pretty long time. Um, You know, but in other cases, there were people who were always incredibly resistant. They didn't uh, trust that these uh, women actually had their best interests at heart. They were very suspicious. I mean, you know, and the truth is a lot of these people had had really rough lives, right? I mean, it's not like, yes, there were a few kind of high end courtesans who had a pretty great life, but most of the people who ended up in sex work in you know, 1940s China were not, you know, were not enjoying a great standard of living. And so there were some people who were, um, really happy for the new opportunities, but there were others who, uh, just didn't trust anybody. after their life experiences. And so people, you know, there were women who, uh, you know, till the end of their lives, they really insisted that they remembered this as a positive experience. Um, And in a sense, I used to think that it was very much about the kind of the ideology and what the Communist Party offered them in terms of um, ways to kind of rethink their life and how they ended up and also practical benefits like, yes, we will give you a factory job, we'll help you get settled. Um, And I still think that to a certain extent, but over the years I've also just decided that it probably also had a lot more to do with those personal relationships inside that re-education center that made it meaningful for them
0: and it was part of the the efforts to say you know take sex sex workers for example uh, to you know re-educate them, educate them in political education uh, was there a comparable attempt to remove the stigma of a sex worker in Chinese society so was was there propaganda or and just speaking of the Lupin proletariat in general, like did the Chinese Communist Party also try to remove the stigma that most, I would imagine most societies have towards these types of people?
1: Absolutely. And there were a number of newspaper articles, also uh, fiction written by you know uh, party writers, which were about this, which were about trying to understand how, yeah, in the case of sex workers, but also in the case of petty thieves and beggars, how these people had been uh, forced into this, you know against their will uh, by the old society, right? and I mean, that's historically it turns out that's probably not a very um, correct analysis of how people ended up where they were, right I mean we we know that it was actually a lot more complicated, although some certainly were were forced into those positions. Um, but it, it was a compelling argument for a lot of people and and most people, you know, wouldn't really come into contact with these sex workers. They might see beggars on the street, but you know, it's not like these people were necessarily um it's not like an ordinary person in Beijing would would have any other perception, right? And so this uh, this propaganda was effective, but it was effective for people who um, or it was effective about people who kind of accepted the government offer and 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 rehabilitated themselves and and took up those factory work positions or or whatever, because over time, it turned out that some people did do that. They were happy to go work in a factory. They didn't want to be a sex worker or a beggar. But others kept going back to their old ways, right? They faced a lot of resistance. They just couldn't actually get... I mean, they made they made huge strides in getting rid of begging and petty theft and sex work, but they couldn't totally eradicate it. And so the propaganda about the people who continued to engage in these kinds of activities was really very negative. So it was almost like a temporal thing. If you are a sex worker before the new society, you are a victim and you deserve like praise for getting your life together. If you are a sex worker after the new society, you are bad um, and subject to incarceration and you're a, you're a parasite on society, right?
0: Talk a bit, uh, this goes to another question that was just asked about uh, the types of, of literature and, and I'm going to put literature in a very broad um, did people read to refashion themselves? So like if you're in these, these re-education camps, you know, what type of materials did you have to consume as models for how the type of person you have to be? And the question is referencing, were there any particular books important like, you know, Stalin's short course? Uh, and, and how did people in reading this material, as best you could get this through your, your sources, how did they interpret and, and maybe even internalize in their own way, these kinds of um, models of behavior.
1: Yeah, I think it depends, again, on kind of where you're looking at society. If you're talking about um, re-education movements that are going on inside universities, people are, of course, reading Marx, and they're reading Lenin, and they're reading Stalin and Mao. Um, and, they're, and they're trying to think about um, developing their own kind of theories of how to sort of make that make sense in a Chinese context. And in, in doing that, they're, they're really thinking deeply about how um, they might actually rethink their everyday experience. They might even rethink the way that they approach their research questions. But at the more grassroots level, people are getting lots of just kind of examples. They're getting lots of model cases, both negative and positive, for how you do this. Like um, the one, one of the ones I was talking about earlier, they'll have, it was serialized in the newspaper. They had... Um, a story of this woman who uh, was a, a sex worker in this small village and a local communist cadre had gone out to this village kind of at the very beginning of the 1950s. Um, and he hadn't gone out there for anything to do with sex work. He'd gone out there to do other kinds of organizing. Um, and then he finds out that there's this sex worker there. And he, he in the beginning, is just as sort of, you know, awful to her and he, he, he calls her names and he wants to sideline her. And then he's told by a superior, oh, actually, this woman has suffered and you should go talk to her. And he goes and talks to her and she tells her story. She recounts the narrative of how she suffered and why. And that it was because the landlord was able to force her into this position where she had no choice but to engage in sexual activity with him, to to pay for land. And then once she had done that, other people, you know, came and started to make similar kinds of offers, but she never had any choice and she never wanted to do this. And, and you, you watch, she tells the story of her victimization, but then she also tells the story of before this cadre got there, um, the communist party had come and she had, they had saved her from this and she had been able to remake herself. And now she's like making shoes. Right. But you also watch the communist cadre going through the same reeducation and he's making a self-criticism. Like, I can't believe I thought, these terrible things about this woman, that's such a bourgeois way to think, right? In fact, this woman was one of the laboring masses. And so ordinary people would read very detailed accounts within which people went through that re-education process themselves. And then they were supposed to emulate that, just starting by just telling their own stories. All you had to do was tell your own daily life story and then you could go from there.
0: Were these re-education camps and people who went through them, were they possible platforms of social mobility? Like, you spoke about working in factories, but did it go beyond that? Did it, you know, because the reason, the, the this comes from a question that's being asked, but it also comes from a, something I was thinking about earlier. You describe that these people's class position, and, and in the book, you refer to them as non-enemy classes. Uh, and so they're, they're, and you say that, the, you know, Mao saw them as kind of potentially vacillating. So they're kind of, they're on the, they're, they're, um, they are on this kind of margins of bad class, good class, right? And you, you pointed that, that there's a temporal element to this. So in going through this reeducation process, a did you were were people successful in shedding that kind of vestiges of that class position? and then did it allow them for any kind of social mobility as a result?
1: I think for some people, it really did. I mean, there are um, several examples of people who became, um, yeah, like managers in their factory or team leaders in their factories or whatever, and went on to work, you know, for the rest of their lives in these factories and had pretty decent standard of, of living. Um, there were many uh, who, who did go on to become activists with the party, and then some of them even later cadres. I mean, of course, those are examples that are still pretty widely publicized. I mean, if you kind of, you know googled it in chinese you would probably find these people right they're they're very uh, they're highly publicized so they're probably not you know the the norm i think a lot i mean unfortunately a lot of these people when they went through the re-education center they were offered a position in a factory that factory was like you know in xinjiang or someplace really far away and they sort of ended up stuck out there or um they weren't offered a factory position there was a there were they were really encouraging a lot of the women especially coming out of the um, institutions to marry uh, farmers or people's Liberation Army soldiers people who it was difficult the party was difficult for the party to help these people find wives and one of the things they really wanted from the party was help um, starting a family and so there were there were lots of they of course they were not arranged marriages but there were lots of kind of mediated meetups Um and, uh, you know, there were lots of stories about women going out to the countryside and, and marrying into a family and then, you know, going back to the city and engaging in sex work again because they it just didn't, um, you know, it wasn't fulfilling or, or workable or whatever. So I think um, probably the, the more common example is these people became low-level factory workers and most of them probably stayed in those jobs or um, they were, it, mostly for sex workers, for, for beggars and vagrants, they were really sent back. Uh, to their hometowns in the countryside, and and made to engage in farm work there. And they, most of them, probably stayed there doing that because, you know, what else were you going to do?
0: It, one of the things that, of course, strikes me is is the parallel with, you know, like in so, the Soviet Union, attempts to create this new person, right, through this kind of acculturation, through the institution of a socialist society, et cetera, et cetera, and then, of course. And, and, you know, a lot of historians have in the last, you know, 15, 20 years have looked at the, the kind of subjectification of this, like how this shapes your identity, how it shapes your life story. And, and the, the memoirs and, and other sources you looked at, did you see people starting to frame their life around this, this transformative experience, like to, to kind of become a different subject and regard themselves as like essentially, for lack of a better term, reborn in, sort, in a sort of way?
1: I think so. And I think it's really important too, to think about the way this is happening at all different levels. I mean, when I, when I was writing my first book and I would constantly have people say, right, but you can't necessarily believe any of this, right? Because these are people who really had no choice. I mean, what they were doing was was now illegal in the People's Republic. They could either sort of take this factory job and say, thank you so much. Um, yes, I'm reborn or not. And so there's no way to know if these people are actually, yeah, really being transformed at the level of subjectivity, really seeing this as a rebirth. And it was difficult to get at that. Uh, I was able to, there were a few people who, you know, years and years and years after the fact, you could talk to them and they would still be like, yeah, I, actually, I felt like it was a pretty transformative experience. Um, and, and then, and there were, you know, others who were like, no, you know, I, it was cynical the whole time. So actually what made it uh, easier to think about was sort of moving out of that and just looking at kind of like ordinary people. And this is why I, where I started down what I'm, what I've been doing, which is just looking at. Um, the way ordinary people would sort of engage with the state in political terms, right? So if they would send petitions to the state, or if they would write about their experience with uh, political re-education, and um, this stuff is also really complicated, right? Because if somebody writes a petition to the state, and they say, hey, you know, I've been completely transformed uh, through through Maoism. And so using my new Maoist subjectivity, I want to argue that I should have like a better job or whatever, because I'm a member of the working class. It's easy to see that as kind of, um, that's just, you know, using these categories to negotiate for daily life. But I found some stories where people really do seem to kind of radically rethink their daily life through these categories. So one story that I really like a lot is um, a story from 1966, uh, where there is this um, pig farmer in Shandong province who uh, goes to the state-run foodstuffs uh, office to sell a pig that he has raised. And when he first goes there, he's told that the pig is going to be worth 70 yuan. And they're going to butcher the pig and get it ready. And then he can come back and collect the money. So he he comes back a couple of days later or whatever. And they tell him, well, it turns out that there were roundworms in the pig. Um, and so now it's going to be worth 17 yuan less. And that's a lot of money, right? I mean, that's like somebody's like monthly salary or something, maybe more. Um, so he's really upset. So he writes to the Bureau of Commerce or whatever, which is above this. And he says, listen, you know, this is politically wrong because Mao Zedong says that we're supposed to go all out to foster pig farming. And that's true during the Great Leap Forward. Actually, Mao had said that. Um, and he'd said, we want a pig in every yard. We want a pig for every person. And everybody has to help farmers raise pigs. And so this guy says, listen, you know, this person is, is not following through on what Chairman Mao says by making a farmer lose money for a pig. Um, and so when this letter comes in, they send a, a communist cadre out to talk to this guy, Mr. Lee, And this cadre thinks that he's convinced him at the end of the encounter. And he writes a report. And he says, well, I went out there and he was really upset. But I think I convinced him that, you know, pigs with roundworms are really like worth less, right? This isn't a political problem. It's just unfortunate. And so he goes away. But, but Mr. Lee writes another letter And he says, no, listen, this is a political problem, right? He says in the old society, farmers didn't have any control over stuff, right? A landlord could take a pig just from you anytime. If times were tough, you had to sell a pig for whatever you could get for it. The whole point of the new society is it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to return power to the people. And then he ends it with this is the highest order. It's a directive from Chairman Mao. And sure enough, the cadre ends up sort of mediating on his behalf to get him the full amount for the pig. And then the cadre writes something which says, you know, oh, I, I had, a, I made a self-criticism too, right? Like in the end, I saw that this was an actual political problem. And, you know, who knows about what Mao really thought? Who knows about what that cadre really thought? But for Mr. Lee, like this gave him some authority. It made him really matter. And people will sometimes say, right, but isn't that still just him using that rhetoric, right? Still for daily life reasons. But... Maybe, but that seems like a really banal way to put something really profound, right? The authority, the right to speak, the right to sort of reorder daily life and assert your position as somebody who gets to interpret the world and say how politics and governance should work. I think for some people anyway, that was very powerful. For others, I think it was a much more cynical use of jargon.
0: Um, You know, so this brings to the question, your, your research concerns looking at, you know, quote unquote Maoism, on the local level as, as, as close to the ground as you can get. So, and, and, and this, this of course begs the question, well, how has Maoism or the Mao period been traditionally understood by historians and, and dealing with, you know, regular people?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's had a sort of a, an up and down trajectory. I mean, I think when people first started to see what was happening, before the communists took power right in their base areas, there was a lot of enthusiasm for what was going on. It seemed like they were solving practical problems for poor people. It seemed like they were offering people, I mean, not democracy in the way that we tend to think of it, um, but, you know, a, ver- a much more democratic way of having a say in governance, one that was supposed to be directly in um in conflict with kind of liberal democracy to to be an even better form of democracy, and I think a lot of people found that really compelling. A lot of people there, a lot of observers, and so some of the earliest work on the Chinese communists took them very seriously, even if critically, right? Like they're very serious; like they're really trying to do this, and this this could be this could be amazing, right? This could be a really um, a, a model forward. Uh, and then um, over time, uh, historians sort of looks back at this period of time and saw it as having been much more cynical and um they saw the human cost as having been incredibly high um and you know in in some ways the historiography is really marked by the fact that some of those people who were most enthusiastic about Chinese communism, they, they went to China in the beginning of the revolution. They were unbelievably impressed. They really thought that this might be a model for the whole world. It offered people on the left something um, to hold on to that wasn't Stalinism, which they were feeling increasingly dissatisfied by by the 1960s. Um, and they really, you know, almost kind of became um, self identified Maoists to a certain extent. And then, um, they they sort of they sort of narrate this story whereby they become completely disillusioned because they come to believe that it was all just completely fake basically that the communist party never did anything but lie and that in fact the whole thing was just um a, a smokescreen right for what was really kind of an authoritarian power grab um and on the one hand I mean, it's not like they were wrong to be disillusioned, right? We found out all kinds of things in the late 70s and early 80s that people had not necessarily known about um, the costs of the Great Leap Forward, the toll of the Cultural Revolution, the kind of um, massive human toll that Mao and his allies and their policies had on China. Um, but at the same time, these scholars, their disillusionment, they were so, I think they they felt so personally betrayed that they refused anymore to take anything that the Communist Party said seriously, kind of ever again, right? So they, they they moved from taking them seriously to not taking, I mean, they took them seriously, but but just not believing a the word they said, seeing the whole thing as just a massive propaganda um, exercise, to the point that um, it just became really, really difficult to do history of Chinese communism that did anything other than either look at the views of the state through its own documents, or try to kind of find some local grassroots history in oral histories and oral testimonies. Um, And that's still in some ways kind of where we are, although younger scholars are really trying to think about ways to to move beyond that kind of post-disillusionment paradigm, because even though they're right that, you know, there is a lot of reason for disillusionment, uh, the the, the drive to sort of falsify and to prove that the party never did what they said that they were going to do. Um, has created real problems in the scholarship. For example, something that you and I talked about earlier, this idea that we don't believe a single thing the party says if it's positive about something the party did. But if they say anything negative, In the party documents we believe all of that right and so which means we kind of reproduce their narrative about what was wrong with the state uh which
0: this goes to exactly you know what you wrote in in, in an article that you're going to soon to be soon to be published article you wrote there is nevertheless something troubling about the brutal yet bumbling model it also quite elegantly reproduces the party state's own narrative about its governance uh, what do you mean by it? First, explain what you, what is the brutal yet bumbling model, and then what do you mean yeah, by this statement? Yeah, so the statement? brutal yet
1: bumbling model is something um, advanced by um, Professor Neil Diamant, who's a political scientist, whose work I think is a- a- amazing and a- incredible and really, really important. Um, I just uh, – well, I'll talk about my point about the the bumble bumbling yet brutal narrative. But, but basically what he and others argued was that if you look at the Chinese Communist Party's own documents – Uh, you find that they had all of these grand plans. And again, like we don't know, it's difficult to, to know at the level of the highest policymakers like Mao Zedong, whether or not these plans were cynical or whether or not they were idealistic. But there's no real evidence that at the kind of ground level that cadres are being trained in some kind of cynical praxis. Like they're being told, go out and talk to the people, go out and help the people, but also surveil the people, you know, do all these things. Make sure the marriage law is implemented. Make sure we're rounding up sex workers, you know, et cetera. Etc., but that they can't really carry out a lot of their grand plans because the cadres at the local level either are bad, right? They're like corrupt, or you know, they like they love their new position. They do exactly what Mao said, which is kind of become a new elite, you know, um, and they sort of lord it over their the people that they're supposed to be helping, or they're just incompetent, right? Um, And on the one hand, of course, that's true, right? There was tons and tons of corruption, and their cadres were like they were overworked they were undertrained they there were there were i mean if if you look at like the the things that a, that an average cadre at the grassroots level had to do in a day, I mean, all they ever did was like go to meetings and do work. I mean, they're so busy, right? I mean, so, so yeah, so there are some some truths to this, right? All,
0: all my friends who are listening to this who do Soviet history are like, uh-huh. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, that's funny because when people would go to petition, one of the complaints that ordinary petitioners would often, make, oh, well, they wouldn't come out and hear my petition because they said they were in a meeting and I'm like, well, but they probably were in a meeting, right? Um, but yeah, so, so there's some something to be said it's not that the bumbling and brutal cadre thing isn't you know a practical reality but it's also a discursive um category because the higher-ups in the party can of course I mean, political scientists have pointed this out for more recent periods of time it's like the blame middle management thing right you know like oh it's not us we up here at the top uh, you know want to serve the people and the people of course want to want to you know be in line with us on that. We 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 and the people are together, but these middle managers, these cadres, they just keep messing everything up. And as long as you you continue to do that, um, yeah, I mean it it it, it works really well for the senior party. And so, I guess my claim isn't that. It's true, or that it's not true, but that we have to be careful how it's used. Because when we go in and we say, "Oh, I looked at this document and I found," well, like we were talking about, you read these communist documents, and this is what they look like. They say, "Oh, we're doing such an amazing job in um, implementing the marriage law in this town," and they give a couple of sentences of you know things that they did well, and then the whole rest of the document is like, "But then there were all these really terrible things that happened, like all of these people who you know are using divorce as a weapon, all of these men who are threatening to leave the party because their wives are divorcing them, like the whole thing is a disaster." Um, uh oh. Right. And so the way historians were kind of doing this is they would be like, okay, skip everything that comes before the however, right? And then after the however, that's the true stuff. Um, and I think that it, 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 both of those things can't be true. We, we can't, either, either we can't take their documents seriously, and that includes the negative stuff, or we have to think about this all as part of a complex argument. And again, when you say this, it sounds really obvious, but yet we don't treat communist documents that way. And so as a result, we, we really have been reproducing the narrative of the state. But my argument isn't even necessarily that we shouldn't do that. I think that's fine. I think we should map the grain more fully of what their argument actually was and then see what it looks like to read against that grain, rather than this other grain of before and after, or before the butt and after the butt.
0: Yeah. And then there's also a tendency to read resistance into all of this stuff, right? Like all of the bad things people kind of circumventing local officials or challenging them or something like this is seen is is also taken to the other direction, where it's just seen as some sort of resistance to the quote unquote system. Uh so given that, like how do you negotiate since you do look at the relationship between, you know, party officials on the ground and, you know, average people, how do you deal with this kind of problem of of getting at the documents and what's going on?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, and on the question of resistance, there's yet another one of these kind of discursive problems, which is that so like in the case of the people who are interned, the sex workers and the beggars, they're interned and um Yeah, the work reports report a ton of resistance, right? Oh, they're... Um, there were, there's one great scene where all the sex workers are they're being guarded by some people's Liberation Army soldiers, um, and they apparently all open their robes and flash them at the same time. <laughs> and the soldiers are ah, oh, and then they and then they all run, right? <laughs>
0: uh, all... I'm surprised the soldiers are running, right. what? No, no the, no, the women run. Oh, I got <laughs> they you. They take advantage
1: of the moment of chaos and they like bolt, right, out I of see, the re education center. <laughs> um and so so you know, and this stuff That's is great. great. And of course there are elements of resistance there. I'm hundred percent sure, as hundred percent sure as any historian can be, this things like that happened because i heard those kinds of stories so many times in so many different contexts but um of course those reports also had to be full of that stuff because well for one thing superiors say you also need to tell us about problems you're encountering i mean they literally had to write that stuff but
0: yeah because they're the eyes of the state exactly
1: right i mean you can surveil people down to a really grassroots level but you can't just tell the good things that you're doing right you have to say the resistance but on an even deeper level they needed to be resistant because that proved that the party was doing the right thing by interning them. If they were all perfectly compliant and they were like, "Yes, you guys are right." then it would seem like there was no need to have them interned in these institutions. And so, if they could discursively continue to prove all these people, they want to run right back out and engage in sex work, they don't even know what's good for them, and that's why we've got to keep them here until we can get them to sort of, you know, rethink this and reform themselves a little bit more. So, So it's really difficult to look at this stuff, right? There's the problem of are people using political jargon to their own ends? Does it really mean anything? Yeah, there's the problem of most of this stuff is coming to us through documents that the party themselves composed. I mean, you can go do oral histories and people, and that's great, but that's a whole other set of, uh, you know, source problems. And so
0: I mean, you're mostly dealing with subaltern people where their voice is being mediated by some sort of, you know, institution in some way mediated is certainly through the archive in a variety of ways.
1: Absolutely. First by the party who's compiling. And even when you have a letter that an individual person wrote, and sometimes these aren't people who are literate. They're people who got, you know, their their neighborhood letter writer to write for them. You have a letter that they wrote that they sent to the state, but it's still coming to you for a particular reason, either because it was preserved in an archive or in my case because it was thrown out and I bought it in a, you know, used book market later, right? So but for whatever reason, you're only getting a selection of the things and that selection is controlled. By the state in lots of ways.
0: So, given this, like, how do you understand? Uh, you know, you laid out a bit ago how Maoism was seen by historians, and now there's this this shift of more historians like yourself who are trying to understand it on an everyday level, everyday Maoism. So, what is your understanding of of Mao? How would you how do you understand Maoism then?
1: Well, I mean, I think. So there also for a long time was a, a, a kind of a sense that we shouldn't even really use the term Maoism, right? Because it's not clear what it means. But I, I like it. I think one of the problems is we don't we don't have a term like Marxian, right? We don't we, a term that says you know kind of like a Mao inflected. Like some people have tried Malvian, but um, copy editors keep taking it out. So, <laughs> You know, because the problem is when you say Maoist, it sort of makes people think that you're trying to claim that Mao's trying to talk about Mao Zedong's particular ideas, right? Um, and, you know, people will often tell you that, you know, in, in China, people don't use a term that translates to Maoism. They talk about Mao Zedong thought, which is something different. Although, even the official understanding of Mao Zedong thought is sort of Mao Vien in a sense, in that it only... It only talks about the parts of Mao's thoughts which have later proven to not be his mistakes, right? So Mao's mistaken ideas aren't necessarily part of like Mao Zedong thought as far as the party's concerned, and it can also include um, the later theories of other leaders who were supposedly thinking in a kind of uh, Maoist way. Um, and so I guess I sort of think about Maoism like that it like it's an imperfect way to sort of talk about um, a set of epistemological and practical um, elements that are connected to some of Mao's ideas or to the Chinese revolution. Um, And so for me, I mean, obviously, it's it's a very practical set of methods. It's a method for, you know, not just to interpret the world, but to interpret it so that you can change it, you know, to paraphrase Marx's famous statement. Um, But it also, I think one of the reasons that I think it's most meaningful to people is also connected to what I was saying earlier about the guy who was trying to sell his pig, Mr. Lee. Um because it is an epistemology because it is a new way to think about things. it's a new way to interpret the world and to interpret them in ways that are really, really radical and really resituate power um and I think people found that unbelievably compelling and you know as a result it was both r- incredibly liberating for some people and disastrous and catastrophic, you know uh, for others precisely because it did allow people to so radically rethink i mean some of the Um, historians whose work I like the most right now are kind of arguing actually that some of the crackdowns that we see during the Cultural Revolution were actually on people who were more Maoist than Mao himself, right? Yes. Um, this
0: this this leads exactly to my next question, which is: Is there a Maoism without Mao? And the reason why I ask this is that when I teach Stalinism, I try to get my students to think about Stalinism without Stalin, like as best we can. Like, how do you understand it as an experience that's disconnected from this guy somewhere? Can you? Is there a a, a personal Maoism? Is there a Maoism without Mao that you can kind of conceptually kind of pieced together at least a little bit?
1: I want there to be. Um, and I and I want there to be, I want there to be a Maoism without Mao, a Maoism if not for Mao, and a Maoism despite Mao even. Um, and I think one of the reasons this is so important too is because it's kind of a shame actually that this entire movement that was so meaningful to so many people, that, that one person that Mao Zedong gets to stand for all of that. And that his mistakes get to stand for all of that. I feel like it does a massive disservice to people who were in this for all the right reasons, uh, people who who dedicated their lives to trying to, um, you know, build a new China, to trying to do things like, you know, like the women who worked for the Women's Federation, for example. Um, uh, who you know, uh, there's a, a wonderful recent book by uh, by Wang Zheng, which is about. Uh, you know, we used to have this sense that the Women's Federation was just kind of an arm of the Communist Party, but she, in fact, finds that there were all of these feminist women who were in there all the time fighting against the party to actually be able to do feminist work to serve women. I mean, not everybody, but lots of people, and they dedicated their lives to that. And when, at the end, we turn Maoism into something that's evil or 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 cynical or. Uh, you know, whatever the the what what took China in totally the wrong direction. that's that's good in a sense because I, I I support wanting to hold accountable people who 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 do um those kinds of things. But it also just sort of erases the experiences of all these other people for whom these ideas were also really important. And so I don't know I haven't yet figured out what a Maoism without Mao looks like, but that's what the stakes are for me to want to do that.
0: You know, you look you look at the the. Let's go back to the people's appeals to communist officials, the state, even Mao personally. I'm, I'm a, I would imagine a lot of people wrote letters directly to Mao, um, and and I always found find this an a fascinating thing to look at because one of the things good about communist states is that they have a tendency to preserve a lot of this material, <laughs> um, in archives. Uh, talk about like what are what are talk about these appeals. Is there a narrative of appeal? Uh, do they I mean, you you mentioned earlier that you do see some uh, using the language of the regime against the regime. Um, but more so when you look at this material, what do you take from it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it is fascinating material. And there's such there's a very long history of people um, in China petitioning the state, the highest authorities for particular kinds of reasons. Traditionally, this is something that you do um, if there's a grave injustice, right? The idea that an ordinary person might even have the right to petition the emperor if an injustice was done that was of great import. Um, But under the, the, the communists, this gets expanded, or at least they really want to expand it. I mean, People, it turns out, always wrote to the emperor about anything they wanted anyway. But legally, they weren't really supposed to to do it um, unless there were were things that were injustices, where in the Maoist period, they're really being told um, write to us about anything. They're telling Cadres, like, you know, you should be going into your reception rooms for the people, and people should just be coming in and chatting with you like your old friends. It doesn't matter whether they have anything to say, right? And on the one hand, I mean, think about the level of surveillance, right? It's like, this is what, this is what Facebook <laughs> has done for, for our era, right? Completely. To get people's just everyday random thoughts. That stuff is so valuable. Um, so there's obviously a really practical element in that sense, but I think there also is this sense that, um, you know, you you do you can't, you want to be as responsive as you can to people at the grassroots, um, and so I think that people then they they believe it they they take it really seriously like okay well the party's telling us to to bring all of our our stuff to them so let's do it, um, and they start bringing everything from the tiniest disputes that they have within their families to bigger political concerns, but then you get back to these um, bumbling and brutal cadres again. Even the cadres who are working really hard are really, really busy, and they don't think that, like, notes about somebody's extramarital affair are a particularly important part of their job, right? So in some ways, we, we often think of the PRC as, you know, they try to put in place this kind of Big Brother-style surveillance system, and they they may have wanted to do that, but ultimately... Sometimes they couldn't, you know. So, so these letters would sometimes pile up in offices, and then when uh, a supervisor was going to come in and look at, and 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 see how they were doing, they would like burn them all because they didn't want to get caught. Um, and so, you know, a ton of them would would never be read. On the other hand, some of them were read and immediately responded to, right? So, I don't know. This maybe connects to this sort of uh, this kind of Kafkaesque sense that you can't predict what the state is going to do. But rather than some kind of irrationality, it may really just be a randomness of the information that the state got and how they were able to act on that.
0: How does your research on brainwashing uh, and Maoist persuasion at the grassroots inform the questions you asked about, say, the reporting on contemporary detention and re-education of uh, Uyghurs?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, and people have asked me a lot about what I think about these things. And I mean, as of right now, I don't see. I don't see that they're that they're motivated for in similar ways. I think first of all, there's a real historical disjuncture. Like the techniques that they uh, developed for reeducation had everything to do with people who um, had been living in a so-called old society. It had to do with a deep critique of capitalism, imperialism, feudalism, a deep, a deep kind of national searching. Um, for, for, uh, you know, almost like national uh, remolding, right? Um, And China's no longer in that historical context, right? The situation in China is completely different vis-a-vis capitalism, vis-a-vis imperialism. Um, But yet they're using those same kinds of techniques. And so they end up just seeming really hollow to me. And it's hard for me to imagine. I mean, I do think that some of the individual people maybe in those centers who are the re-educators, they might believe that they're doing something positive. They they might not themselves be cynical about this. Um, but it's hard for me to see precisely because there is such a disjuncture between the kinds of the kinds of things that this thought reform is supposed to make you rethink and what they're trying to convince people in uh, these particular re-education centers of. I just don't I don't see this as the same project at all. Um, so As much as I hate to say this, this is one of those cases where I do have a harder time taking it very serious. I mean, I take it very seriously as a problem, right? But but taking the parties, I usually will take the parties side seriously, and I have a hard time doing that in this case.
0: Given again back to this Maoism from below, how do you? How does that help you understand? Chinese communism in general? Since one of the questions we've been asking, and I've been asking in all of our of my events around the question of, you know, socialism or whatever, how one might define it, is how do we take these kind of particular, you know, subjects uh, and kind of generalize them to a better better understanding? So how, how does that help you? Or what can you say about the, the Chinese communist experience or, or what it is?
1: I think uh, one of the things that it really does is remind me that at one point in the middle of the 20th century, people were actually open to the possibility of a whole different world in a way that we're not necessarily. Well, maybe we are now again, but we weren't, you know, for for a longer period of the sort of later part of the 20th century. Um, and it started, and, and precisely because you know so, somehow through a series of historical processes, by the late 80s, we get a kind of a Thatcherite. Regonomic idea that there is no alternative to the world that we have now. And so all we can do is just work on the world that we have now. And when we read that back at Maoism, Maoism always seems kind of like futile or like it could only have ever been cynical, or like nobody could have ever actually thought there was any alternative possible because there's so clearly not. So there's Or worse, we...
0: look what happens when you think there's an alternative, a lot of people die.
1: Right. It just gets worse and worse. And 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 I don't know, when we go back to the grassroots level and you see ordinary people who are trying to really radically reinterpret their daily lives, and they're, they're having these powerful little victories, like getting their full 70 UN for their pig, you know, because they were able to, to prove their authority, um, I think it reminds you that whether or not um, it was kind of an ultimately a doomed endeavor, that there was this... Um, feeling of, of, of possibility, you know, uh, a, a, an endless possibility even about what the world was like and what it could be like, you know, and that that's why some people were, were in on this. And so to look at it purely from the kind of cynical way that we look at it from the top doesn't really capture... And then it makes it seem like everybody was just sort of brainwashed, right? Why would anyone participate in that? It's so obviously ridiculous. But when you go back to the daily level, you realize they may or may not have been right. They may or may not have been, you know, may or may not have been the, uh, the right decision, but they were truly inspired. Um, and that's inspiring.
0: That was Aminda Smith, an associate professor of history at Michigan State University, where she specializes in the social and cultural history of Chinese communism. She's the author of. Thought Reform in China's Dangerous Classes, Re-education, Resistance, and the People, published by Roman and Littlefield. She is currently writing a book tentatively titled Truth Revolutions, Consciousness and the Praxis of Chinese Communism, which investigates how Chinese communists, at various levels, understood their work as a global praxis, that fomented revolution by facilitating profound and personal changes in individual consciousness. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my High Excellencies, High Wellborns, and Noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.
2: Ципи молдаванские всю ночь глядит луна Их только жизнь цыганская беспечна и валена Маня дали прохоже вол цыганские костры зайди скорей при кружи мой ковровые Shatri Dari 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 Data Dari 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 Душу не коверкают, заботы гонят прочь, цыганскою венгеркою встречает обьч, и больно сердце мучает, гонят тоску и гнев, ночная пляска. Сгучая, лихой, степной, напевно.